You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. Hey, welcome to Knowing Faith. Here we are again for our second live episode of the morning. We're doing a couple of these today. We'll do a couple of them next week. We'll let you guys know when and where you can tune into them for next week. Hey, if you've jumped on this, thank you for jumping on. Um, we are recording these episodes. We're not just streaming them right now to YouTube, although a lot of you are probably watching them there, but we're also recording them and we'll, we'll post them later as their own kind of individual standing video. And then they'll also be clipped and posted as a Knowing Faith podcast. And so this is not just live in that it's happening right now. It's also will be a live podcast that gets posted. Uh, where we typically post our podcast. So wherever you find your podcast, you'll be able to find this later. So for today, uh, we've talked earlier in our first episode about uh, the book of Acts. We're continuing on that journey, but now we're going to jump into talking about global crises and what the Bible says about last days or living in the last days. And so I was... um, Jen told me to hold this off, but I begin every talk that I do in the training program on the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of the end or last things or eschatology by saying this. Tonight, I'm going to thoroughly dissatisfy you on this topic. Uh, I am not going to answer the questions you have. I'm going to try to give you the questions that you should be asking. Because a lot of times when we come to the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of the end, we approach it with questions that are far more culturally informed than emerging from the witness of scripture. And listen, there's no, like, that's pretty true of our experience of approaching a lot of different elements in the Bible and the Christian story. Yep. There's my wife and my daughter in the background. They're waving. Hey, Lydia. (laughs) Uh, uh, But uh, uh, yeah, Lydia's like, yeah, give me some more of that screen time. She's like, let let me jump in. You know, she wants to get that. uh, it's, it's, it's okay to have those kinds of questions about things that are happening in the world. But a lot of times when we go to the Bible, the Bible is inviting us into asking a different set of questions than we're bringing to it. That's so uh, let's talk about it. That's what we want to do. So it's not uncommon in the face of global crises for conversations to pick up regarding the end times or last days or the end of the world, the second coming of Christ. Um, have either of you heard or felt that at at this point in the pandemic? Like, have you seen those questions come across on social media? Have you heard them from people? Have you seen them in kind of the national attention? Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 Honestly, I don't think I've seen it maybe as much as I was anticipating, but I've definitely seen it. I would say more, more though, more so for this than anything we've experienced in, in my, you know, time of being a Christian and kind of thinking through world events this way, Uh, still the most, but probably not as much as I was expecting. Yeah, I was talking with my dad, and he's been in pastoral ministry for a little over 30 years, and he said the last time that he's that he felt it like it is right now was after September 11th. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. That was the last marker where he felt like people were asking those kinds of questions at a cultural level. Yeah. Now, the preoccupation with the end times is something that is ongoing, and if you don't believe me, just look at the movies that are made and the blockbusters every summer. I mean – the central conceit of almost every blockbuster movie is the world is ending and it must be saved. I mean, one way or another, that's a one scientist who has a key to fixing everything. Exactly. Or this superhero, or even just like, Oh, it was, it was kindness the whole time, you know, Uh, (laughs) like whatever the thing is, but that's like, it's so baked in this idea that the world is ending and someone has to save it. 
or someone has to stop it from ending. Um, and so even in times when it's not a global crisis, this is a question that's very hot on people's minds um, in such a way that storytellers and Hollywood knows that if they want to sell tickets, that's a pretty effective way of, of doing it. So why does it seem like people, just broadly, maybe not right now, but broadly, why are people drawn to that question or idea? Why are they drawn to the question, is the world ending? Well, it's not something that is unique to our generation. I mean, uh, Jesus's disciples ask him this question regularly. And if you look at church history, this is a question that's asked uh, regularly throughout church history, whether it was other caused by other kind of global catastrophes or even sometimes local uh, crises. And so I think it's something that's just in us is we all have this story built into us that we know it's going somewhere. Uh, and one of the things that a crisis like this can kind of remind us of and bring into view is that there is a story that's going on in the world and we're trying to figure out how to make sense of it. Yeah. Uh, and we know that it's coming to a conclusion or some kind of an end. And uh, maybe a better way to say it is that we all know that we're living in a plot. Yeah. What is the plot and how can I interpret world events appropriately and rightly as if this plot is taking place in my life? Now, that obviously can be over torqued and we can look for plot and, uh, you know, narrative turns everywhere where they aren't. But I think that's just an, a human impulse to want to figure out how does my life fit into this overall narrative? Yeah, it's a, I think the underlying impulse is a desire to understand, which is yeah. a, and that I think we're seeing that not just with regard to like discussions at the end times with the pandemic. I mean, even we've had a question out here about like exodus and plagues. It's like, we want to find a way to understand the moment that we're in. And often we want to try to understand that moment when we're in the moment. And, um, and I think that's one of the things, anytime that we're having this discussion in the moment, we run the risk of being caught up in the adrenaline of the moment. Um, and that a lot of times it's better to just abide and yeah. to let things play out. But I do think that's the underlying impulse is I need some way to explain what is happening to me right now. That's right. Um, is it. And I, I'm not, uh, I want to be really clear. I am not uh, criticizing that. Oh, for sure. But I think it's important for us to understand that's what's motivating the conversation. Yeah. And I see it play out into three different ways. There might be more, but these are the three that came to mind as I was thinking about it. One, I see people trying to, uh, wrestle with questions about the end of the world or global crises in a way that I would say is without reference to the Christian story. Like it's without reference to it. So it's without that context and intentionally so. Either because that person's in a different faith tradition, but they have a different religious background and a different religious self-identification, or there's somebody who is what we might say is like has absorbed the secular mindset of not feeling the need to refer to anything beyond their lived experience to make sense of the world around them. So there's like that. So without reference to the Christian story, then there are others. And I would say this is more in like what you see in terms of the uh, kind of uh, people that are, have maybe been on the outside or just in the outskirts of Christian faith or Christian community who still either because of their cultural acclimation or because of their interest or their background or just the work of the Lord in their life begin to want to, uh, to understand their experience of the world with reference to the Christian story. Like they're trying, like they know that the Christian story says something about the end of the world and they're trying to understand their present moment with reference to that. And they've got a broad outline. And then there's a third group 
which is within the Christian story. So those that are trying to make sense of, uh, of what's going on in the world around them from within it. And uh, there are more and less helpful ways for each of those people to kind of proceed on that path. But those are, I feel like, the three ways where it plays out. So you got people that feel no need to try to make sense of the present moment within the context of the Christian story. Those who feel some need uh, but maybe have not really been in, in the Christian story in terms of like they haven't been living it out self-consciously, but it's in their mental um, – it's in their imagination. It's a part of their mental or emotional furniture. So they're referring to it to try to make sense of it. And then there are those who are followers of Jesus who are like trying to understand what's going on in the world and what does the Bible say about that. Does that make sense? I think it makes great sense. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this because I think we've talked about it in other episodes. But one of the ways that we try to, to train our students in the training program is through this idea of story specifically. And so we talk about not only the true story of the world uh, that we find in scripture from Genesis to Revelation, but one of the ways we help our students frame it is through the lens of false stories. So we talk about the false story of progressivism or perfectionism or pragmatism, romanticism, American civil religion. And those, we, we didn't make those things up. Those are ways of thinking, but there's also more than we actually are able to teach through. And Kyle, I know that you and I spent a lot of time thinking about that curriculum in particular. One of the things that struck me the last few years about these false stories that have kind of started teasing into the teaching is that none of those false stories have a way of making sense of suffering. Mm-hmm. None of them. Like they, and I wonder if that's why there can be a preoccupation when we get to seasons of global or communal mm-hmm. suffering where we have kind of an epistemological crisis, because if the story, and I'd say one of the primary stories that Americans live in is the story of progressivism. Yeah. Kind of, we started from the bottom, now we're here, and I'm going to give a better world to my kids, and they're going to give a better world to their kids. And if only we could, you know, continue to pursue scientific advancements, if only we can continue to pursue kindness towards neighbor. And, and here's the thing that's true, is that all of these false stories have layers of truth to them. Like, there's, there's some truth that like, I'm grateful that we have vaccines today that we didn't have yesterday. And I hope we have one in the next few months or year that we don't have today. That will be progress. But if I'm only thinking about the world through the lens of progress and not, and I don't have a way to think about suffering or setback, or, which the Christian story provides us, then I'm going to live in a very, a very disoriented and disheveled life. And so I think people are trying to figure out in a moment where our primary ways of looking at the world don't have a means of accounting for suffering. The stories we live in don't know how to deal with suffering. And so that's why at a moment like this, it's like, oh my gosh, is the world ending? I need to figure out what is the true story of the world. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think you're right. Basically, what can we agree on? I mean, this is one of those times where I'm really glad to spend a lot of time in the creeds, right? Because when we talk about the end of the world, what can we all say is true? And the creeds help us. Yep. Says, from thence he will come to judge the, the quick and the dead. So he, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's going to return and there will be judgment. And uh, one of the things that's interesting to me about that, so whether, you know, whether that's pre-trib, post-trib, you know, mm-hmm. millennial, post-millennial, um, what we do know is there is a coming judgment. There is a bodily return of Jesus Christ. And, um, and that word judgment in the Bible is often the Greek word crisis, K-R-I-S-I-S. And so um, I read a really good thing years ago um, that R.C. Sproul had written. I think it was R.C. Sproul. I mean, there's usually a pretty good chance that's who I'm riffing on. But 
um, talking about how anytime we enter into a crisis, we ask these questions of judgment because yep. all crisis in the human life is a rehearsal for the ultimate crisis mm-hmm. of, uh, of the coming judgment of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so it's good, actually a good exercise for us to ask these evaluation questions um, even if we end up with the answer, I don't know, because it, it keeps us living in the right in the right perspective. Um, and, and, and that's the perspective of the early church was the imminent return of Christ. So I think that some of this conversation for me, when people start trying to orient themselves to this and say, wait, is this the, the crisis or is it a crisis, um, is if asking that question causes you to live your life any differently than you were before, you may not be living with a heightened enough awareness of, of the coming crisis. Because yeah. whether you and I are living uh, in the days of the Lord's return or not, um, we all are dealing with a limited timeline. Like yeah. the crisis for us is coming. Um whether we die or whether the Lord returns. And so if conversations of, oh, these might be the final moments of human history change the way that you live your life, um, I think that is something that we should spend some time thinking about. Like, what what would you do differently if that were true? And why aren't you living that way anyway? And I don't say that as someone who is pontificating. It's a question I have to ask myself. I was going to say, even unrelated to, and Jen, I think you're exactly right, but just kind of uh, doubling down on it, pastors and churches, ministries, publishing company, whatever it might be, we need to start helping people think about death. It's a topic that we just avoid wholeheartedly because who wants to talk about it, especially in the evangelical church. I feel like we've hidden death from people. I, I, I was struck by an article written a few years ago. I think it was maybe a year and a half ago now. I think Russell Moore wrote it and he was just making the point how not only has our culture tried to hide death. So like if you're dying, you go to a nursing home. If you're, uh, or if you're sick, you're, you know, you're old. Like if you are having a, uh, you know, a massive uh, health issue, you go to a hospital. And we've been able, like a hundred years ago, if your grandfather was dying, he was in your house and you were a five-year-old watching him, or maybe it was your father, whatever it might be. So death was everywhere. If you were going to church, on the way in, what would you see? Cemetery, graves. On the way out, what would you see? Cemetery, graves. And you realize this is the great equalizer. Nobody gets to escape the Genesis 3 reality uh, or the Romans reality, the wages of sin being death. Uh, and even when we think about like evangelical um, architecture, we've, we've basically adopted architecture that wants to hide suffering and death from people. And we're going to be in a shopping mall and we're going to you know, make it as as comfortable as your experience of going into Macy's or whatever. And again, we, we work at a church. It's literally in an Albertsons. The church I might be going to is a former Walmart neighborhood. So a uh, market. So again, I'm, I'm not trying to, to cast judgment, but what I am saying is, is that I don't think our people have rehearsed in their own minds. I'm going to die. Everybody I love is going to die if Jesus does not return. And we need to be getting some um, internal spiritual fabric to prepare for those realities. And it's moments like this of crisis where it, we're confronted with it face to face. And that's when we don't know what to do with it. Yeah. Our, our lack of spiritual and emotional infrastructure for this, we don't have any place to hang it. Um, and uh, so, if, so let's just, let's just, let's just try to make it simple. Somebody comes to you, you get one word answer. Are we living in the end times? Jen. Yes. 
JT. Yes. Me. Yes. Okay. Now, somebody, people might hear that and be like, wait a second. Like, <laughs> oh, wait, we are in the end times right now. We just found out about it. So let's explain our answer a little bit. Why would we say, yes, we are living in the end times? Why, why do you answer it that way? Why not no? Because Jesus says we are. Tell, talk about that, Jim. You know what else Jesus says? He also says the Holy Spirit was sent at Pentecost. Why don't you believe him on that? <laughs> we're not we're not taking the bait on that okay where jesus tells us we're living in the end times you know self-examination going on with jt <laughs> yes yeah jesus says we're living in the end times and <clears throat> you know there's a few ways to think about eschatology in quote unquote the so eschatology is the greek word for last things or last last times see jen i'm learning I'm, I'm ex- so great thank you um some people think about eschatology being only finding the verses that talk about what's coming in the future. Yeah. But I think a better way to think about eschatology is actually starting in Genesis 1-1 and realizing the entire Bible is eschatology pointing us to it, as we've called it on here, a telos or an end or a kind of a consummation and restoration of all things. And that doesn't begin you know, in Daniel. It doesn't begin in Revelation. It doesn't begin when Jesus is addressing these things to his disciples. Those are just questions that are asking uh, granular questions about the big narrative of eschatology. Yeah. from You could say, like, from the moment of creation, the world is headed towards consummation. That's or right. Proper fulfillment in it. Those two things are, I think Gregory of Nyssa, it was one of the Cappadocians, but I'm pretty sure it was Gregory of Nyssa, said, uh, uh, it, baked into creation is the telos of every created thing. Mm. But that everything is headed towards this goal, towards this final completion, which Paul says will be summed up in Christ Jesus, that in Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1, that he is, he is summing up the whole cosmos uh, it's, uh, as, uh, as a plan for the full, full fulfillment of time to unite all things in Christ Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. It's going to be brought into Christ Jesus. We know that. So that's kind of where everything is headed the whole time. Um, I just want you guys to know our, our YouTube audience, as they're asking questions, are on my side. They're saying, get them, JT. So just for you to know, they've turned on you. Well, whatever. Um, I turned on it. That's if there's one thing that I've known about you is that you've always represented the voice of the internet, JT. <laughs> Hats off to you. <laughs> You're offending our listeners. I'm just saying. I'm trying to give the people what Jesus said and what they want. You can. We're living in the end times. I'm just trying to call to call you to repentance. Well, we agree. We agree. Put all back in. Exactly. What people really want to know is, do we believe the return of Christ is imminent? Yes. Yeah. I, and the answer is, one word answer. I, I need a hyphenated word. Yeah, me too. No. Is Jesus's return imminent? By virtue of our perspective, we have no idea. Like, no, by virtue of you know, by virtue of how we perceive time, we have no idea whether it's a day, 10 days, 1,000 days, 10,000 days, 100,000. Okay, Alvin, thank you for, for... I'm just saying that we don't know. We don't. We can't perceive it in that way. I mean, and also too, it also depends on what you mean by imminent. Do you mean tomorrow? Do you mean a year from now? Imminent for an 85-year-old is very different from imminent for an 8-year-old. So I don't know how I would answer that question. It would depend on who's asking and what they're coming with. I would say that... If in the perspective of God's rule over the world is the return of Christ imminent, yes, it's imminent in that it is quickly approaching. But what it's like, if by imminent we mean it's soon in how we perceive length of time, then I would probably say, I don't know. That's largely dependent on how you perceive what's coming close. What's your view of history? 
Okay, I said one word, Kyle, for heaven's sake. <laughs> then, my, then my word would be maybe. Jen? I don't know. So, yeah, I agree with you guys. And we're all saying the same thing. But so here's, here's why I'll say yes. Uh, although I agree with Kyle's thoughts on time and I agree with Jen's saying I don't know because you're right. I don't know if it's tomorrow, seven years from now. It's also entirely possible that we are still technically the early church. It's yeah. possible that in terms of the way time is working, we could be 10,000, 20,000, 40,000 years away from Jesus returning. But I don't think when we are discipling people, uh, that makes it any less imminent. Because mm-hmm. in discipleship, and I think like you look at, at Jesus's, uh, you know, I think of like Matthew chapter 23 through 25, 26, getting into your territory here, Jen, is it seems like he's teaching his disciples that final judgment is imminent and all disciples should live as if Jesus is returning today. All disciples should live as if Jesus is returning tomorrow. So even though we're right about time, it could be 40,000 years from now. I'm not going to live like I have 40,000 years to wait for Jesus. And I know you're not saying that either. I'm saying that's my next question is, um, should we live as though his return is imminent? And then the other part of that is, what does that look like? The answer to the first part of the question. Yeah, the answer to the first part of the question is yes. And I think this is exactly what Paul is exhorting the church in Thessalonica to do. First Thessalonians 4 and 5. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then he goes to, in chapter 5, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. He's giving them the tension here. He's saying, you, uh, church, you should prepare yourself and be urgent in a way that reflects that the coming day of the Lord is coming and is coming soon. Yeah. And that's the cry of uh, John at the end of the book of Revelation. The spirit and the bride say, come, and we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Right. So there is this petition of, yes, Lord, please come and living with expectancy. But he also is admonishing the church in Thessalonica, who seems as if they might have been kind of like scheming, strategizing and charting it out and saying, don't do that. You need to continue the faithful work because you don't know when the Lord is coming. So what would be the, um, the wrong way to interpret living what is a misunderstanding of living in expectation of the return of Christ that is can be found among well-meaning believers? Tea leaf reading, that's the most common one that I think about, is just looking at the times and trying to one-to-one correspond everything that happens on a global stage with some sort of uh, thing that the Bible presumably prophesies will happen. Like I've seen a lot, and I don't know if it's just because of the social networks I'm tied into, but I've seen a lot of Facebook posts that will de- will say something along the line of tying the plagues or the bowls of wrath in Revelation to our, our pandemic. And it's like, well, that's a sign of trying to take the book of Revelation, which is a whole different conversation about prophecy and how much of it is foretelling, which is telling the future, and foretelling, which is commentating with the voice of God on the present, 
I'm of the opinion that most of the prophecy we find in the Bible, including that revelation, is foretelling, meaning it's commentary on present events with the voice of God um, and not foretelling, which is prophecy about future events. Anyway, so tabling that, I think the common temptation and unfaithful application of that kind of urgency is saying I need to constantly be watching for signals in the world. That's what I mean by reading tea leaves, um, of trying to figure out like, oh, it must be happening now. I think that's uh, I, that would be the first answer I would give too. I'll give <clears throat> a not as obvious answer, but I think it's still true. Uh, and again, if somebody does this, I'm not trying to throw shade, but it's kind of the prepper mentality of like what I need to do to prepare for the Lord's imminent coming in judgment is buy lots of Doritos and water and get ready for you know how bad the world's going to be. Now, like the, the imminent return of Christ isn't a call to preparation for survival; it's a call to holiness. It's a call to godly living. And so we shouldn't be preparing for some kind of, uh, not to use a biblical term, but like the tribulation of like, how am I going to survive this? It's a call to love of God and neighbor, not survive. Okay. Mine would be escapism. Yeah. That's another one. That we are like, um, you know, oh good. I'm, I'm fine. I'm going to get out of here and I won't have to deal with X, Y, or Z anymore. Yeah. Um, and certainly that is, an aspect of what it means to be with the Lord. I mean, to be present with him is that we will be out of the present within. Um, but when you are looking at a current circumstance and saying, if, if this is, you know, I just wish that the Lord would return. So I don't have to go through this. Um, that's actually not something that we see modeled in scripture. Like you don't see Paul ever say that Paul is someone who would have believed in the imminent return of Christ. And yet, in all the stuff we've been watching happen to him in the book of acts, he never once prays, Lord, why don't you just return and get me out of here? Yeah. And so like, really, I'm always encouraging people. If you only know one view on creation, or if you only know one view on eschatology on the end times, you should, you should learn the other views. Uh, you'll either uh, find your own view challenged or your own view strengthened. Yeah. But um, the one piece of it that just makes me crazy is the idea that um, in a, in a, it, is that the believers would be removed before tribulation comes um, that we would be whisked away because it just doesn't fit. That's my hot sports opinion on eschatology. That's all I'm going to give, but it's like, all of these elaborate arguments about why believers shouldn't expect to suffer. I just, I don't get that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that whenever I've read those, the concern is less about the suffering of believers and more with the winnowing of the world. That's the focus is like that it's more of a final invitation because particularly in that view, there is typically I don't know. Uh, these views are like snowflakes. Okay. There are as many of them as there are people articulating. Right. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you in this noisy world? God's heart beats hard with love and mercy, but how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend a hundred days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with overflowing mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. 
As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World as Seminary President Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. Okay, so this is actually a good opportunity just to talk about something. Okay, so you got, there are kind of three big buckets when you're talking about views on the end times, okay? There is premillennial, postmillennial, and amillennial, okay? The, Don't do it that way. Amillennial is between pre and post. Whatever. Okay, premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial. Premillennial is, is basically the view that we are existing prior to a millennial reign of Christ Jesus. It typically treats the millennium reign as a defined thousand-year period that will occur. Within that view, there are different views on things like the rapture, when that will happen, how it will happen, the tribulation, if that will happen, the tribulation, what that will be, how long it will be, who will be involved in it, and what will be going on just prior to the rapture, during the tribulation, and immediately following the tribulation for a thousand years. So there's a range of views, but premillennial is largely viewed that we're existing prior to a defined millennial rule and reign of Christ that will include, but isn't limited to, a rapture and a tribulation. And a thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus. So to give people kind of a, a biblical, like, something to hold on to, uh, this is the, maybe the simplest way to say, why does a premillennialist believe what they believe? They would just say, and sometimes we, like, I, this, is a, this is an area I kind of sometimes feel like I'm between two worlds, not to be eschatological there. But that was a good pun. I didn't realize that. Revelation 20 comes before Revelation 21. That's what they would say. So Revelation 20 is about this thousand year reign and the defeat of Satan. And then revelation 21 opens up by saying, then I saw a new heaven, and new earth coming down from heaven. That's the simplest way to talk about a pre millennial reign return of Christ before revelation 20 comes rapture, judgment, tribulation. Then the kingdom comes thousand years. Then the kingdom comes. Perfect. All millennialism is the view that this is, there's a lot of different nuances to these views, I'm giving you a hatchet version. Just want to be clear that some premillennialist or amillennialist doesn't troll me on Twitter and be like, "That's Actually, would you guys please troll them? That would be just great joy for Jen and I to watch." Amillennialism is basically the view that the millennial rule and reign of Christ is a real thing, but it's not a real time signature. And typically, amillennialists would believe that with the coming of Christ Jesus life, death, resurrection, and ascension, there was a rule and reign, a millennial rule and reign, millennial again, not confined to a defined thousand-year period, but representing an epic or an era in the history of redemption that we are currently living in. 
um, that is between the already and the not yet. We're kind of stuck in between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. And within that tension, within that space, we are living in the millennial rule and reign of Christ Jesus that will be consummated in the second coming of Jesus. Typically, all millennialists will not hold to a view of rapture or a view of tribulation. If they do, it's not nearly as sequenced or defined as a premillennial view. Um, again, because we are living in the rule and reign of Jesus, they typically don't stagger events systematically within that, but yet everything culminates in the second coming of Christ, which is marked by his the glorious unveiling, his physical appearance, which brings with him the new heavens and the new earth. That's Again, it's a very broad view of amillennialism. This would take the millennial rule and reign of Christ as something we're currently living in, but what is not constrained by a defined thousand-year period of time. And the way those two positions that you've highlighted would argue is, <clears throat> what does it mean to literally read Scripture? Yeah. Right. So it's a, there's a, it's moving from a more literal reading to a, to a more figurative reading of things like millennium being not a literal 1,000 year period, but a period of time, um, prophetic language being used in a particular way. And that's where the nuanced conversation gets around. What is apocalyptic literature? How do you read genre? How do you, and that we're not going to get into that, but that's where those two positions would see themselves diverging. Post-millennialism is probably the trickiest of the three, in my opinion, in terms of just understanding it. But post-millennialism is broadly the view. Um, again, there are, different, there are different flavors of post-millennialism. But a basic version of post-millennialism is communicating something along the lines of a progressive reality that Christ Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom of God and that even now is beginning to restore, remake, and recreate the world through Christ Jesus' rule and reign and the spirit-empowering life of God's people, the body of Christ on earth, who are functioning as the primary agents or ministers of reconciliation, bringing all things back into union with Christ Jesus as Lord. And so essentially the, uh, the post-millennialists will either believe that this is going to happen after a defined period of time has elapsed, that essentially a clock will start, and then from that clock we will see this re restoration work happen. Some will believe, like all millennialists, that we are, we're not waiting for a defined thousand-year period of time that has ever been marked as a beginning and will ever be marked as an end, but that it will happen progressively over however many years it would take, and that eventually will be consummated with the return of Jesus Christ with the new heavens and the new earth, which will really then be kind of sealing and celebrating and adorning the work that had been progressively accomplished leading up to that time. It's like a, it'll be like the celebration that, yes, the trees will clap their hands because the whole earth has been brought back into order. That's good, Kyle. I mean, that's, those are hard positions to explain. I think you did a good job. Hey, here's an idea. Let's do a live capture on a really difficult topic. <laughs> it's also, true. I'm wondering how many people who are listeners had no idea how much we gesture when we talk. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> like we're actually in physical danger when we're in a small room together. <laughs> it's, it's true. It's true. Well, so let's maybe start landing the plane with a couple of questions to get some, those were big. Listen, those three positions, both the, how they're written and how they're articulated are, they're complex. Yeah. Um, and there are a lot of different ways to explore them. Um, but so maybe it'd be good for you, like we do sometimes to reorient and just do some theological triage. 
what are the essential beliefs about the end of the world? Like, what do you, what are, we've done this with the doctrine of creation. What are the essential beliefs that would say, listen, you take this out of the equation, you're now talking about something that does not feel like it could be a faithful application of any of the Christian uh, perspectives on this topic. What do you have to have? The bodily return of Christ in judgment. Bodily return of Christ in judgment. Yeah, and yeah, you're, I agree with you, Jen. And resurrection from the dead. Yeah, unto judgment. But yeah, you're I'm, you're you you're including that in the bodily return of Christ. But <clears throat> so, resurrection of the dead, bodily return of Christ in judgment. Um, I would say some some form of remaking the world, which is restoration. probably included in judgment, but restoration. It's like, he's not just coming to judge and purge and be done with it. He's coming to judge and remake and restore. Yeah. Well, and so, but this is the really important thing is that this is why people like Kyle and JT and I rarely uh, discuss where we land personally on this because it ought not to be so, but it is often so that people make this a test for orthodoxy. That's right. I tell you my view on creationism, or if I tell you my view on eschatology, and it, it means that you don't listen to me anymore on anything else, um, then, you know, I feel like, well, that didn't, that didn't really serve the purpose, um, because it's not, it's not within the closed fist. We are allowed to disagree on this, and it doesn't make one of us a heretic. Um, and I, this is a real skill that the internet needs to learn to practice. Um, we've talked about this a little bit before. It doesn't make it doesn't make me a false teacher if I teach a different view of this than you believe. Yeah. Um, you may consider me to be a bad teacher or a teacher with whom you disagree, but it does not mean that I am a false teacher or that JT is a false teacher. Um, but so uh, often the solution for people who have a broader message they want to communicate is I'm not going to tell you what my view is because first of all, um, you, you should you should develop your own thinking on this. But secondly, it is so typically a Interaction for people. The most common request I get for, you know, writing a Bible study is, why don't you write a Bible study on Revelation? Well, if I did, I would want to write one that addressed it just from a, from a literary standpoint that took people through and, and gave them <laughs> for, for understanding prophetic language and those kinds of things. But that's not why people want uh, someone like me to write a, a study on Revelation. They want me to um, show my cards, so to speak. So to speak, and, and it's not my job to give you a view on the end times. It's your job to develop that. And I would say probably the worst time to be trying to figure it all out is when you're in the middle of a of a current crisis, because the yeah. impulse is all going to be wrong. Yes. You're exactly right, Jen. I think that's why we're all hesitant. And it's it's not right for us to connect divergent views on secondary issues like this to primary views. For example. The reason somebody might call you, I, or Kyle, or anybody a heretic on end times is because they'll trace it back to, okay, so you're an amillennialist and I'm a premillennialist. And if we're different, that means you actually don't believe in an inerrant Bible. Right. How could you disagree with my interpretation of the Bible? And right. God has so clearly said, so how can I trust you on anything else? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. If somebody's interested in digging in a little bit further, specifically on on uh, millennial issues and eschatology, there is a book. Uh, I think it was written by uh, it was published by Zondervan. It's called Three Views on the Millennium and Beyond, and it's three authors who have these three different views who will articulate the view and then respond to each of them. It's a little bit he- like it's a I don't it's not academic, but it's certainly not devotional. Uh, but it's a I found it to be helpful. Yeah, it's a good one. And also, you know the. Um 
the revelation uh, overview that the Bible project did. Yeah. It's like yeah. four parts, I think, if I remember, or two parts. It's a really good starting point for asking if you have started with good questions, I think. Uh, yeah. And so that might be something you could start by looking at. But I would just say, if you're spending a ton of time on this over a period of years, uh, don't forget that there are lots of other really important things that you could be spending your time learning. When when people used to ask me about my view on the end times, I would give them C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle. I'd be like, there you go. Which was a little coy um, because it really is not a new... <laughs> what? I wonder if Jake had any thoughts on you pointing them to C.S. Lewis. Whatever. Well, <laughs> um, uh, we will never be able to accuse JT of being a poet. Um, uh, that sensibility is not there. Um, but uh, but yes, the last battle I think does capture the general sentiment uh, of my view on the end times. So if you were going to read something that I think is really helpful in the end times and the right kind of help, I would read C.S. Lewis, The Last Battle. Um, that's that, that's my book recommendation for you. Um, okay, let's take some questions. We got some questions. Um, from listeners and we, we need to end this. So let's take some questions. Let's do this. Okay, the, there was a question submitted by Virginia, Jen, that asked, what is the significance of the daughters of? Zalapahad. Thank you. Uh, historian numbers, why wouldn't that provision have already been in the law? Okay, so in the, so what we, what we actually are seeing in the story of the daughters of Zalapahad, so if you're not familiar with it, um, <laughs> um, one of my favorite stories, the daughters of Zalafahad. Um, Zalafahad dies without a male heir, basically. And so the reading of the law was that his, his inheritance would, would not go to his descendants because there was no male heir. That is the way the law was being interpreted um, by the elders of Israel. And so um, the daughters of Zalafahad perceive that there is an issue of injustice in the reading of the law if it is read that way. And so they saddle up their donkeys and they make they ride up to the elders and they make their case and they say it's not right that we would not inherit. Uh, and um, everyone takes counsel and Moses says the daughters of Zalafahad are right. And so the question is, did the law change to accommodate their request or did the daughters of Zalafahad see in the spirit of the law something that was missing in the way that it was being applied? So we know that God does not change, God's law does not change. And so what we would assume then from the passage is that the elders of Israel were applying a limited understanding of the law to this situation. And because the daughters of Zalafahad um, respectfully brought their case, everyone was edified and Israel functioned in a better way after that time. I'm going to have to take your word for that one. Uh, <laughs> that was in third Corinthians, Kyle. What? That was in third Corinthians. Well, if, we, if, it, if, if it was found there, then I would include it in. Um, uh, okay. So just one more time. I'm still stuck on the pronunciation. Zalafahad. Yeah. Okay. There's five of them, five daughters. Okay. Full handful. Should I, should I acquaint myself with this story? Should you what? Should I read this story? Should I get familiar with it? It'll take you about 45 seconds. I mean, it's not that long, but it's really, it, but it's a pretty significant thing. It's an unexpected story. And it's one of those stories where you should be asking, we should be asking of all of the things that could have been included in this account. Why is this story preserved for us? 
Yeah. Because you did it and it does, it feels like at this sort of aberration. Uh, and so then it's good to ask some follow-up questions about why it was even included. Could have been left out, but it wasn't. Okay, awesome. Uh, Carrie uh, asked, how would I talk about these things with high school students? I'm, this question came in recently, so I'm, I'm assuming it's about the uh, our discussion on the end times and pandemics and the Bible. How would I talk about these things with high school students? I, I, I would start honestly with going to the essentials, like how we ended. I'd begin there by just talking about like, listen, the Lord Jesus Christ is coming. This is what the Bible says about his coming. It says that he's coming. It's going to be bodily. He's going to be coming to judge the living and the dead. Um, it's going to be good. Like for those in Christ Jesus, it's going to be the best thing that's ever happened. Um, and then for those who have persisted in rejection, it's not going to be good. It's going to be met by uh, judgment um, and the wrath of God. And that's a sober message. Um, but it is a message that I think is, as per JT's point earlier in the podcast, I think it's a message that we need to hear that there is a coming crisis, as Jen mentioned, and as JT was talking about, that we typically spend a lot of time distancing ourselves from. So that's where I would start. I would take the practical approach to of being aware of what other versions of the story they're probably hearing from many kids who are in, you know, who are church kids. Um, what are the what are the common misconceptions that might be out there or emphases that might be out there? And with 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 high school and middle school students, it's always helpful to push them toward well, practically, you know, what is this going to mean for you in terms of the way you're relating to the world and to other people? And so again, pushing back against the idea of escapism or of um, hoarding or anything like that, hoarding in the sense of like, oh, I'm going to make sure that I maintain my comfort now or whatever, but pushing them toward, hey, um, if you if you knew that he was returning tomorrow, how would it change the way you live today? Why aren't you living that way today? So that's one place to start, but don't, don't leave him there because they'll think, well, I need to go out and be a street corner evangelist. If, if I think that this is happening tomorrow, I'll be like, no, because you don't actually know when it's going to happen. None of us do. And so living in the, in the, in that in-between space of it could be any time, it might not be a long time. How do we live? We don't have to guess at that because that is what the Bible is telling us. It is giving us that pattern. So you can push them toward, well, we would, we would want to live holy and upright lives. We would want to have habits that are indicating every day and in every relationship that we really believe this gospel to be true. And yes, we would want to evangelize, but we would also want to be growing in holiness with every passing day. That's good. All right. Last question. This one's from Bruh. That's what, that's how it's titled in here. I don't know if that's the real name. Bruh. Uh, what's up, bruh? Uh, what is Orthodox belief? What are primary teachings? What can we disagree on, not just on creation and time? So JT, like if somebody comes to you and says like, what do we have to believe? How, what, what do you tell them? Yeah, I think <clears throat> the term that we, or we've, we've talked about this before on the podcast, the, the phrase is, how do you do theological triage to what are the essentials? Think of like a cascading bullseye, like, what are the most important things? What are the, the still important things? And what are the maybe second or third tier issues that we hold to? Uh, the first order issues are what we call creeds and councils. That's the, I mean, and certainly the Bible, but you know, we, we hold the whole Bible to be true. We believe the apostles creed is a faithful summary. We believe the Nicene and Chalcedonian creeds are faithful summaries. And the first, and theologians disagree here, the first five or seven councils which were universal. This is where the entire church, East and West and the early church got together and, and made specific confessions and theological articulations about here's what Christians believe. Kyle, I, I do wonder if you and I disagree on what I'm about to say now. So I'd like to hear your thoughts. I would also say the teachings of the reformers. 
around justification by faith and salvation in Christ alone. I know that that we're we're like really trying to thread a needle here, uh, but but as a as a as a Protestant, I think Protestant is Protestantism is orthodoxy around justification by faith alone. That it's not enough just to be a Trinitarian. It's also, in other words, uh, we have to we can't just know who God is and who Jesus is, which Protestants and Catholics would hold together. You also have to know what He came to do. Matthew chapter sixteen. You can't just confess Jesus as Lord. You also have to understand what his death and resurrection mean. Uh, now, again, I know that Kyle, Kyle's getting ready. I can see it. Over no, there. I'm, I'm, I'm going to let it lay. I'm going to let it, I want you to have the last word on this one. Okay. But then there are things that we would say are not primary issues. This is where we get into denominationalism, like Baptists and Presbyterians, Anglicans, Episcopalians, and others, where we would say we hold 99% of things and the most important things in common. The things that distinguish us are around practice of baptism or practice of the Lord's Supper or practice of church polity. These are things that we can actually divide over and happily so and say that God's mission and the testimony of Jesus Christ is going forward in diversity. Uh, but we don't have to have to um, <clears throat> distance ourselves in terms of orthodoxy. We're saying we're all Trinitarians. We all believe in who Jesus is and what, he, what he's come to do. But the way we set up our church is different, or the way we do baptism is different. Yeah, it's a good answer. So creeds, councils, Bible, and then like denominationalism and confessions. Love it. Are you frustrated with me? No, no. We'll just we're gonna take it offline. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, like, I think I think what you'll say to me offline. I think I agree with it too. Yeah, of course. I'm just saying it's like this is a tough topic. It really is. It really is. Um. Hey, thank you for tuning in. We're going to do this again. Hang on. I'm going to stop you right there. I'm just going to, I'm just going to end with this one comment. You know who would agree with me? If you say Jesus, I'm going to slap you. <laughs> no, uh, Jesus would, but I was going to say John Calvin. You're a theological homeboy. Sure. Well, um, I take the word of God as my, my authority, uh, not John Calvin. I, I understand that. I'm just saying that John Calvin would disagree with you. He would. There, he absolutely would on this point, for sure. Did you have something, Jen? No, I just wanted to end. Speaking of the end time. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to do this again next week. We'll tweet out a link. We'll let you know when it's happening, how you can jump on. We hope you'll jump in for that. It'll be the last one on the book of Acts. And then, I don't know, we'll we'll, we'll probably pick something else that's timely to do for the the, the other episode as well. We're also hoping to be able to give some clarity as to what you can expect from knowing faith going forward, um, really through the summer and headed towards the fall next week as well. But it's Wednesday, one to three. Put Put it on your calendar. Perfect. All right. Bless you guys. See you next time. Grace and peace.